Part Three, Chapter Eight of Nostromo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Bologna Times. Nostromo by Joseph Conrad, Part Three, Chapter Eight. No doubt. The initial action of Charles Gould had been helped at the beginning by a period of comparative peace, which occurred just about that time, and also by the general softening of manners as compared with the epoch of civil wars, whence had emerged the iron tyranny of Guzman Bento, of fearful memory. In the contests that broke out at the end of his rule, which had kept peace in the country for a whole fifteen years, there was more fatuous imbecility, plenty of cruelty, and suffering still, but much less of the old-time fierce and blindly ferocious political fanaticism. It was all more vile, more base, more contemptible, and infinitely more manageable in the very outspoken cynicism of motives. It was more clearly a brazen-faced scramble for a constantly diminishing quantity of booty since all enterprise had been stupidly killed in the land. Thus it came to pass that the province of Sulaco, once the field of cruel party vengeances, had become, in a way, one of the considerable prizes of political career. The great of the earth, in Santa Marta, reserved the posts in the old Occidental state to those nearest and dearest to them, nephews, brothers, husbands, or favorite sisters, bosom friends, trusty supporters, or prominent supporters of whom, perhaps, they were afraid. It was the blessed province of great opportunities and of largest salaries, for the San Tome mine had its own unofficial pay-list, whose items and amounts, fixed in consultation by Charles Gould and Senor Avilanos, were known to a prominent businessman in the United States, who, for twenty minutes or so every month, gave his undivided attention to Sulaco affairs. At the same time, the material interests of all sorts, backed up by the influence of the San Tome mine, were quietly gathering substance in that part of the Republic. If, for instance, the Sulaco collectorship was generally understood, in the political world of the capital, to open the way to the Ministry of Finance, and so on, for every official post, then, on the other hand, the despondent business circles of the Republic had come to consider the Occidental province as the promised land of safety, especially if a man managed to get on good terms with the administration of the mine. Charles Gould, excellent fellow, absolutely necessary to make sure of him before taking a single step. Get an introduction to him from Moraga, if you can, the agent of the King of Sulaco, don't you know? No wonder, then, that Sir John, coming from Europe to smooth the path for his railway, had been meeting the name, and even the nickname, of Charles Gould at every turn in Costaguana. The agent of the San Tome administration in Santa Marta, a polished, well-informed gentleman, Sir John thought him, had certainly helped so greatly in bringing about the presidential tour that he began to think that there was something 
in the faint whispers hinting at the immense occult influence of the gold concession. What was currently whispered was this, that the San Tome administration had, in part at least, financed the last revolution, which had brought into a five-year dictatorship Don Vicente Ribiera, a man of culture and of unblemished character, invested with a mandate of reform by the best elements of the state. Serious, well-informed men seemed to believe the fact, to hope for better things, for the establishment of legality, of good faith, and order in public life. So much the better, then, thought Sir John. He worked always on a great scale. There was a loan to the state, and a project for systematic colonization of the Occidental province, involved in one vast scheme with the construction of the National Central Railway. Good faith, order, honesty, peace were badly wanted for this great development of material interests. Anybody on the side of these things, and especially if able to help, had an importance in Sir John's eyes. He had not been disappointed by the King of Sulaco. The local difficulties had fallen away, as the engineer-in-chief had foretold they would, before Charles Gould's mediation. Sir John had been extremely feted in Sulaco, next to the president dictator, a fact which might have accounted for the evident ill-humor General Montero displayed at lunch given on board the Juno just before she was to sail, taking away from Sulaco the president dictator and the distinguished foreign guests in his train. The excellentissimo, the hope of honest men, as Don Jose had addressed him in a public speech delivered in the name of the Provincial Assembly of Sulaco, sat at the head of the long table. Captain Mitchell, positively stony-eyed and purple in the face with the solemnity of this historical event, occupied the foot as the representative of the OSN company in Sulaco, the host of that informal function with the captain of the ship and some minor officials from the shore around him. Those cheery, swarthy little gentlemen cast jovial side-glances at the bottles of champagne beginning to pop behind the guests' backs in the hands of the ship's stewards. The amber wine creamed up to the rims of the glasses. Charles Gould had his place next to a foreign envoy, who, in a listless undertone, had been talking to him fitfully of hunting and shooting. The well-nourished, pale face, with an eyeglass and drooping yellow moustache, made the Signor Administrador appear by contrast twice as sunbaked, more flaming red, a hundred times more intensely and silently alive. Don Jose Avilanos touched elbows with the other foreign diplomat, a dark man with a quiet, watchful, self-confident demeanor, and a touch of reserve. All etiquette being laid aside on the occasion, General Montero was the only one there in full uniform, so stiff with embroideries in front that his broad chest seemed protected by a cuirass of gold. Sir John, at the beginning, had got away from high places for the sake of sitting near Mrs. Gould. The great 
financier was trying to express to her his grateful sense of her hospitality and of his obligation to her husband's enormous influence in this part of the country when she interrupted him by a low hush the president was going to make an informal pronouncement the excellentissimo was on his legs he said only a few words evidently deeply felt and meant perhaps mostly for Avellanos, his old friend. As to the necessity of unremitting effort to secure the lasting welfare of the country emerging after this last struggle, he hoped, into a period of peace and material prosperity. Mrs. Gould, listening to the mellow, slightly mournful voice, looking at this rotund, dark, spectacled face, at the short body, obese to the point of infirmity, thought that this man of delicate and melancholy mind, physically almost a cripple, coming out of his retirement into a dangerous strife at the call of his fellows, had the right to speak with the authority of his self-sacrifice. And yet she was made uneasy. He was more pathetic than promising. This first civilian chief of the state Costaguana had ever known, pronouncing, glass in hand, his simple watchwords of honesty, peace, respect for law, political good faith abroad and at home, the safeguards of national honor. He sat down. During the respectful, appreciative buzz of voices that followed the speech, General Montero raised a pair of heavy, drooping eyelids and rolled his eyes with a sort of uneasy dullness from face to face. The military backwoods hero of the party though secretly impressed by the sudden novelties and splendors of his position, he had never been on board a ship before, and had hardly ever seen the sea except from a distance. Understood by a sort of instinct, the advantage his surly, unpolished attitude of a savage fighter gave him amongst all these refined Blanco aristocrats. But why was it that nobody was looking at him? He wondered to himself angrily. He was able to spell out the print of newspapers, and knew that he had performed the greatest military exploit of modern times. "'My husband wanted the railway,' Mrs. Gould said to Sir John in the general murmur of resumed conversations. "'All this brings nearer the sort of future we desire for the country, which has waited for it in sorrow long enough, God knows.' but i will confess that the other day during my afternoon drive when i suddenly saw an indian boy ride out of a wood with a red flag of a surveying party in his hand i felt something of a shock the future means change an utter change and yet even here there are simple and picturesque things that one would like to preserve sir john listened smiling but it was his turn now to hush mrs gould General Montero is going to speak, he whispered, and almost immediately added, in comic alarm, Heavens, he's going to propose my own health, I believe. General Montero had risen with a jingle of steel scabbard and a ripple of glitter on his gold-embroidered breast. A heavy sword-hilt appeared at his side above the edge of the table. In this gorgeous uniform, with his bull-neck, his hooked nose flattened on the tip, upon a blue-black dyed moustache. He looked like a disguised and sinister vaquero. The drone of his voice had a strangely rasping, soulless ring. He floundered, lowering, 
through a few vague sentences, then suddenly raising his big head and his voice together, burst out harshly. The honor of the country is in the hands of the army. I assure you, I shall be faithful to it. He hesitated till his roaming eyes met Sir John's face, upon which he fixed a lurid, sleepy glance, and the figure of the lately negotiated loan came into his mind. He lifted his glass. I drink to the health of the man who brings us a million and a half of pounds. He tossed off his champagne and sat down heavily with a half-surprised, half-bullying look, all round the faces in the profound, as if appalled, silence which succeeded the felicitous toast. Sir John did not move. "'I don't think I am called upon to rise,' he murmured to Mrs. Gould. "'That sort of thing speaks for itself.' But Don José Avellanos came to the rescue with a short oration, in which he alluded pointedly to England's goodwill towards Castiguana. "'A goodwill,' he continued, significantly, "'of which I, having been in my time accredited to the court of St. James, am able to speak with some knowledge.' Only then Sir John thought fit to respond, which he did gracefully in bad French, punctuated by bursts of applause, and the hear-hears of Captain Mitchell, who was able to understand a word now and then. Directly he had done, the financier of railways turned to Mrs. Gould. "'You were good enough to say that you intended to ask me for something,' he reminded her gallantly. "'What is it?' Be assured that any request from you would be considered in the light of a favour to myself. She thanked him by a gracious smile. Everybody was rising from the table. Let us go on deck, she proposed, where I'll be able to point out to you the very object of my request. An enormous national flag of Costaguana, diagonal red and yellow, with two green palm-trees in the middle, floated lazily at the mainmast head of the Juno. A multitude of fireworks, being let off in their thousands at the water's edge in honor of the President, kept up a mysterious, crepitating noise half round the harbor. Now and then a lot of rockets, swishing upwards invisibly, detonated overhead with only a puff of smoke in the bright sky. Crowds of people could be seen between the town gate and the harbor, under the bunches of multicolored flags fluttering on tall poles. Faint bursts of military music would be heard suddenly, in the remote sound of shouting. A knot of ragged negroes at the end of the wharf kept on loading and firing a small iron cannon time after time. A grayish haze of dust hung thin and motionless against the sun. Don Vicente Ribiera made a few steps under the deck awning, leaning on the arm of Senor Avellanos. A wide circle was formed round him, where the mirthless smile of his dark lips and the sightless glitter of his spectacles could be seen turning amiably from side to side. The informal function, arranged on purpose on board the Juno to give the president, dictator, an opportunity to meet intimately some of his most notable adherents in Sulaco was drawing to an end. On one side, General Montero, his bald head covered now by a plumed cocked hat, 
remained motionless on a skylight seat, a pair of big gauntleted hands folded on the hilt of the sabre, standing upright between his legs. The white plume, the coppery tint of his broad face, the blue-black of the moustaches under the curved beak, the mass of gold on sleeves and breast, the high, shining boots with enormous spurs, the working nostrils, the imbecile and domineering stare of the glorious victor of Rio Seco, had in them something ominous and incredible. The exaggeration of a cruel caricature, the fatuity of solemn masquerading, the atrocious grotesqueness of some military idol of Aztec conception and European bedecking, awaiting the homage of worshippers. Don Jose approached diplomatically this weird and inscrutable portent, and Mrs. Gould turned her fascinating eyes away at last. Charles, coming up to take leave of Sir John, heard him say, as he bent over his wife's hand, "'Certainly. Of course, my dear Mrs. Gould, for a protégé of yours. Not the slightest difficulty. Consider it done.' Going ashore in the same boat with the Goulds, Don Jose Avellanos was very silent. Even in the Gould carriage he did not open his lips for a long time. The mules trotted slowly away from the wharf between the extended hands of the beggars, who for that day seemed to have abandoned in a body the portals of churches. Charles Gould sat on the back seat and looked away upon the plain. A multitude of booths made of green boughs of rushes, of odd pieces of plank, eked out with bits of canvas, had been erected all over it, for the sale of canna, of dulces, of fruit, of cigars. Over little heaps of glowing charcoal, Indian women, squatting on mats, cooked food in black earthen pots, and boiled the water for the mate gourds, which they offered in soft, caressing voices to the country people. A race-course had been staked out for the vaqueros, and away to the left, from where the crowd was massed thickly about a huge temporary erection, like a circus tent of wood, with a conical grass roof, came the resonant twanging of harp-strings, the sharp ping of guitars, with the grave drumming throb of an Indian gombo pulsating steadily through the shrill choruses of the dancers. Charles Gould said presently, "'All this piece of land belongs now to the railway company. There will be no more popular feasts held here.' Mrs. Gould was rather sorry to think so. She took this opportunity to mention how she had just obtained from Sir John the promise that the house occupied by Giorgio Viola should not be interfered with. She declared she could never understand why the survey engineers ever talked of demolishing that old building. It was not in the way of the projected harbor branch of the line, in the least. She stopped the carriage before the door to reassure at once the old Genoese, who came out bareheaded and stood by the carriage step. She talked to him in Italian, of course, and he thanked her with calm dignity. An old Garibaldino was grateful to her from the bottom of his heart for keeping the roof over the heads of his wife and children. He was too old to wander any more. "'And is it for ever 
Signora? he asked. For as long as you like. Bene. Then the place must be named. It was not worth while before. He smiled ruggedly, with a running together of wrinkles at the corners of his eyes. I shall set about the painting of the name to-morrow. And what is it going to be, Giorgio? Albergo d'Italia una, said the old Garibaldino, looking away for a moment. More in memory of those who have died, he added, than for the country stolen from us soldiers of liberty by the craft of that accursed Piedmontese race of kings and ministers. Mrs. Gould smiled slightly, and, bending over a little, began to inquire about his wife and children. He had sent them into town on that day. The padrona was better in health. Many thanks to the signora for inquiring. People were passing in twos and threes, in whole parties of men and women, attended by trotting children. A horseman, mounted on a silver-gray mare, drew rein quietly in the shade of the house after taking off his hat to the party in the carriage, who returned smiles and familiar nods. Old Viola, evidently very pleased with the news he had just heard, interrupted himself for a moment to tell him rapidly that the house was secured by the kindness of the English signora for as long as he liked to keep it. The other listened attentively, but made no response. When the carriage moved on, he took off his hat again, a grey sombrero with a silver cord and tassels. The bright colours of a Mexican serape twisted on the cantle, the enormous silver buttons on the embroidered leather jacket, the row of tiny silver buttons down the seam of the trousers, the snowy linen, a silk sash with embroidered ends, the silver plates on headstall and saddle, proclaimed the unapproachable style of the famous Capitaz de Cargadores, a Mediterranean sailor, got up with more finished splendor than any well-to-do young ranchero of the Campo had ever displayed on a high holiday. "'It is a great thing for me,' murmured old Giorgio, still thinking of the house, for now he had grown weary of change. The signora just said a word to the Englishman. The old Englishman, who has enough money to pay for a railway? He is going off in an hour, remarked Nostromo, carelessly. Buon viaggio, then. I've guarded his bones all the way from the Entrada Pass down to the plain and into Sulaco, as though he had been my own father. Old Giorgio only moved his head sideways, absently. Nostromo pointed after the Gould's carriage nearing the grass-grown gate in the old town wall that was like a wall of matted jungle. And I have sat alone at night with my revolver in the company's warehouse time and again by the side of that other Englishman's heap of silver, guarding it as though it had been my own. Viola seemed lost in thought. It is a great thing for me, he repeated again, as if to himself. It is agreed the magnificent Capataz de Cargadores, calmly. Listen, Vecchio, go in and bring me out a cigar, but don't look for it in my room. There's nothing there. Viola stepped into the café and came out directly, 
still absorbed in his idea, and tendered him a cigar, mumbling thoughtfully in his moustache. "'Children growing up, and girls, too, girls!' He sighed and fell silent. "'What, only one?' remarked Nostromo, looking down with a sort of comic inquisitiveness at the unconscious old man. "'No matter,' he added, with lofty negligence. "'One is enough till another is wanted.' He lit it, and let the match drop from his passive fingers. Giorgio Viola looked up, and said abruptly, "'My son would have been just such a fine young man as you, John Battista, if he had lived.' "'What?' your son? But you are right, Padron. If he had been like me, he would have been a man. He turned his horse slowly and paced on between the booths, checking the mare almost to a standstill, now and then for children, for the groups of people from the distant campo, who stared after him with admiration. The company's lightermen saluted him from afar, and the greatly envied Capataz de Cargadores advanced, amongst murmurs of recognition and obsequious greetings, towards the huge circus-like erection. The throng thickened. The guitars tinkled louder. Other horsemen sat motionless, smoking calmly above the heads of the crowd. It eddied and pushed before the doors of the high-roofed building, whence issued a shuffle and thumping of feet in time to the dance-music, vibrating and shrieking with a racking rhythm, overhung by a tremendous, sustained, hollow roar of the gombo, the barbarous and imposing noise of the big drum, that can madden a crowd, and that even Europeans cannot hear without a strange emotion, seemed to draw Nostromo on to its source, while a man, wrapped up in a faded torn poncho, walked by his stirrup, and, buffeted right and left, begged his worship, insistently, for employment on the wharf. He whined, offering the Signor Capitaz half his daily pay for the privilege of being admitted to the swaggering fraternity of Cargadores. The other half would be enough for him, he protested. But Captain Mitchell's right-hand man, invaluable for our work, a perfectly incorruptible fellow, after looking down critically at the ragged mozo, shook his head without a word in the uproar going on around. The man fell back, and a little further on Nostromo had to pull up. From the doors of the dance-hall men and women emerged, tottering, streaming with sweat, trembling in every limb, to lean, panting, with staring eyes and parted lips, against the wall of the structure, where the harps and guitars played on with mad speed in an incessant roll of thunder. Hundreds of hands clapped in there, voices shrieked, and then all at once would stink low, chanting in unison the refrain of a love-song with a dying fall. A red flower, flung with a good aim from somewhere in the crowd, struck the resplendent capataz on the cheek. He caught it as it fell, neatly, but for some time did not turn his head. When at last he condescended to look round, the throng near him had parted to make way for a pretty morenita, her hair held up by a small golden comb, who was walking towards him in the open space. Her arms and neck emerged plump and bare from a snowy chemisette, the blue woolen skirt 
with all the fullness gathered in front, scanty on the hips and tight across the back, disclosed the provoking action of her walk. She came straight on and laid her hand on the mare's neck with a timid, coquettish look upwards out of the corner of her eyes. Querido, she murmured caressingly, why do you pretend not to see me when I pass? Because I don't love thee any more, said Nostromo, deliberately, after a moment of reflective silence. The hand on the mare's neck trembled suddenly. She dropped her head before all the eyes in the wide circle formed round the generous, the terrible, the inconstant Capataz de Cargadores and his Morenita. Nostromo, looking down, saw tears beginning to fall down her face. "'Has it come, then, ever-beloved of my heart?' she whispered. "'Is it true?' "'No,' said Nostromo, looking away carelessly. "'It was a lie.' I love thee as much as ever. Is that true? she cooed joyously, her cheeks still wet with tears. It is true. True on the life? As true as that, but thou must not ask me to swear it on the Madonna that stands in thy room. And the Capitaz laughed a little in response to the grins of the crowd. She pouted, very pretty, a little uneasy. No, I will not ask for that. I can see love in your eyes. She laid her hand on his knee. Why are you trembling like this? For love, she continued, while the cavernous thundering of the gombo went on without a pause. But if you love her as much as that, you must give your Paquita a gold-mounted rosary of beads for the neck of her Madonna. No, said Nostromo, looking into her uplifted begging eyes, which suddenly turned stony with surprise. No? Then what else will your worship give me on the day of the fiesta? she asked angrily, so as not to shame me before all these people. There is no shame for thee in getting nothing from thy lover for once. True, the shame is your worship's, my poor lover's, she flared up sarcastically. Laughs were heard at her anger, at her retort. What an audacious spitfire she was! The people aware of this scene were calling out urgently to others in the crowd. The circle round the silver-gray mare narrowed slowly. The girl went off a pace or two, confronting the mocking curiosity of the eyes, then flung back to the stirrup, tiptoeing, her enraged face turned up to Nostromo with a pair of blazing eyes. He bent low to her in the saddle. One, she hissed, I could stab thee to the heart. The dreaded Capitaz de Cargadores, magnificent and carelessly public in his amours, flung his arm round her neck and kissed her spluttering lips. A murmur went round. A knife, he demanded at large, holding her firmly by the shoulder. Twenty blades flashed out together in the circle. A young man in holiday attire, bounding in, thrust one in Nostromo's hand, and bounded back into the ranks, very proud of himself. Nostromo had not even looked at him. "'Stand on my foot,' he commanded the girl, who, suddenly subdued, rose lightly, and when he had her up, encircling her waist, her face near to his, he pressed the knife into her little hand. 
"'No, Morenita, you shall not put me to shame,' he said. "'You shall have your present. "'And so that everyone should know who is your lover to-day, "'you may cut all the silver buttons off my coat.' "'There were shouts of laughter and applause at this witty freak, "'while the girl passed the keen blade, "'and the impassive rider jingled in his palm "'the increasing hoard of silver buttons.' He eased her to the ground with both her hands full. After whispering for a while with a very strenuous face, she walked away, staring haughtily, and vanished into the crowd. The circle had broken up, and the lordly Capataz de Cargadores, the indispensable man, the tried and trusty Nostromo, the Mediterranean sailor, come ashore casually to try his luck in Costaguana, rode slowly towards the harbour. The Juno was just then swinging round, and even as Nostromo reined up again to look on, a flag ran up on the improvised flagstaff erected in an ancient and dismantled little fort at the harbour entrance. Half a battery of field guns had been hurried over there from the Sulaco barracks for the purpose of firing the regulation salutes for the President Dictator and the War Minister. As the mailboat headed through the pass, the badly timed reports announced the end of Don Vicente Ribiera's first official visits to Sulaco, and for Captain Mitchell the end of another historic occasion. Next time, when the hope of honest men was to come that way, a year and a half later, it was unofficially over the mountain tracks, fleeing after a defeat on a lame mule, to be only just saved by Nostromo from an ignominious death at the hands of a mob. It was a very different event, of which Captain Mitchell used to say. It was history, history, sir, and that fellow of mine, Nostromo, you know, was right in it, absolutely making history, sir. But this event, creditable to Nostromo, was to lead immediately to another, which could not be classed either as history or as a mistake in Captain Mitchell's phraseology. He had another word for it. Sir, he used to say afterwards, that was no mistake. It was a fatality, a misfortune, pure and simple, sir. And that poor fellow of mine was right in it, right in the middle of it. A fatality, if ever there was one. And to my mind, he has never been the same man since. End of Part 3, Chapter 8